Psalm 33. Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in a steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we have hoped in you. We're going to take a break from our semester study in 1 Peter and address this current worldwide pandemic called coronavirus. The Bible uses a very specific word to describe such disruptions and threats to human life and welfare. This, verb, this uh, word occurs in the Old Testament more than 40 times, and it's the word calamity. Unsurprisingly, Calamity is used 10 times alone in the book of Job. A man that we know shared more than his, uh, enjoy, had more than his share of calamity. Calamity comes from a Hebrew word that means a load or a burden under which one is crushed. Uh, therefore, it referred to misfortune, fall, ruin. And calamity in the Old Testament took a number of different forms. It could be a natural disaster, like a tornado or hurricane, 
divine punishment for sin was considered calamity. Any sort of devastation, the idea is calamity is adversity. And clearly, COVID-19 is a global calamity. So no doubt you have wondered sometime since this whole thing started, how does our sovereign God, who works all things according to the counsel of his own will, who loves the nations, who upholds all things by the word of his power, and whose goodness and mercy cover the earth, surely you have wondered, how is God going to use this calamity? Is there light in this darkness, this devastation, disease, discomfort, disruption? Is there value in, in uh, uh, the, the, this radical alteration of life as we know it? Hopefully, you're going to be asked by your neighbors, oh, you believe in God? If he's good, why has he allowed such tragedy and senseless loss to plague innocent people? Hopefully, this sermon might help you give your neighbors an answer to that question, your children, even yourself. I believe Scripture would have us consider at least the following answers to the question, how does God intend to use this calamity? Number one, God intends to use calamity to reveal to the nations what should unite them. Worship. All of a sudden, all of humanity is united by the threat of a specific virus a potential threat to our health and economic disaster. So no matter where you are, everyone is basically thinking the same thing. You go into a store if you have to buy food or you're pumping gas. Everyone around you, really, wherever you are in the world, we all have the same thing on our minds. So in this case, verse 16 and 17 apply. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. A war horse is a false hope of salvation by its great might. It cannot rescue. No army can fight coronavirus. No political ruler can save you from it. Science hasn't yet brought deliverance. And ironically, the only thing that can protect us keeping our distance from each other is the very cause of our economic calamity. How ironic. The one thing that will keep you safe is the thing that's going to bring about all this economic suffering that we anticipate. But beloved, we all know in our heart of hearts that social distancing has its limits. Can't save you from death, ultimately whether it's coronavirus or something else, we're all ultimately going to die. So every day should be a reminder. Every case reported of COVID-19 should drive God's people to find comfort in verses 18 to 21. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Your sickness is completely noticed by the living God. He's intensely interested in everything about your life and those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. 
He's our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. I'll return to these verses in a moment. But for now, back to my initial assertion, the whole world is united by a health concern. And of course, that's understandable. But what should unite the nations? What should unite every heart that's beating on the face of the earth? Worship of its creator. Verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. When I began to think about what to preach this Sunday and jump out of 1 Peter and address this calamity that we're in, this is where I was driven to this verse, this call that the nations stand in awe of the Lord. And granted, it is a psalm of praise. It was not written specifically to answer the question I'm raising, how does God intend to use calamity? I think we're going to find a lot of value in it. But nonetheless, here is this call that every inhabitant on the face of the earth stand in awe of God. That is what should unite the nations. Fearing, loving, adoring, worshiping God. Psalm 67, 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The nations. For you, Lord, judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations on the earth. What God deserves and therefore demands from his creatures is adoration from a humble heart that constantly depends on him with obedient gratitude. Let me put it this way. As God looks down on the earth, what is it he is fundamentally, principally desiring? He is looking for praise from our lips that come from a heart that is, that is overwhelmed with God's goodness and humbled by God's grace that is issuing in glad obedience to his laws. The worship God deserves is always predicated, always grounded upon his character and his acts. That's why the first three verses tell us how to praise the Lord, and immediately the psalmist tells us why who he is and what God does. Verse 4, for the word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. Good enough reason to adore him. He loves righteousness and justice. Sufficient reason to praise him. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Do you need any more reason to give him glory and honor? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Do you stand in awe of a person with that sort of power? He speaks and something comes into existence. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Who needs more reason to bring majestic awe to this God? He's your creator, the sustainer of your life. He's trustworthy, righteous, loving, and he exerts his immeasurable power for your good, for the good of his creatures. Now, when, when the psalmist says the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord, what I want you to read there is the only reason there isn't more calamity on the earth, the only reason there aren't more pandemics, the only reason the sin and rebellion and heinousness of human hearts isn't wreaking more havoc on the earth. The only reason this earth is fundamentally a decent place to live is the steadfast. 
steadfast love of God for his creatures. If God were somehow to withdraw this, this love and care, we would be perishing in a moment. But beloved, this worship does not exist. The world, by and large, slumbers in the face of God's glory and creation. We're indifferent and dull to the fact that God has personally made us, sees us, knows us intimately. Look at verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. That's you. He sees you. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all, he made you and observes all their deeds. Ignoring the fact of God's ownership over you, and you'll give an accountability for how you lived in light of that ownership, is a perilous thing to ignore. Read Psalm 49 sometime about how wealth deceives people and can't be taken with them to the next life. Man in his pomp, Psalm 20 says in Psalm 40, verse 20 in Psalm 49, man in his pomp yet without understanding is like beasts that perish. And that's because, beloved, as deadly as this virus is, what is worse? Sin. A virus can't keep you from God. A virus can't keep God from loving you. But sin does. God uses calamity to awaken people to humbly render to him the worship he deserves. Sin is the ultimate social distancer. If you die with sin, God will distance himself from you forever. A horrible thing. So if God must chasten to awaken, so be it. Jamie read earlier in the sermon, in the service of, about Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 4. Here's the ultimate case of social distancing, right? This haughty king, God humbles in an instant, drives out, and he's reduced to going around on all fours eating grass. He finally comes to his senses. Daniel 4, 34. At the end of the days of eating grass like cattle, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. My reason returned to me. This is what happens when your reason returns to you. This is what you're like when you're in your right mind. This is the description of standing in awe of the Lord. This is what God made you to be. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. And I, uh, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, 
For all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Would that all the nations, all the kings of the earth, all the rulers of people, and all the people they rule confess that God desires, beloved, the attention of his creatures because he deserves their worship and he will do many difficult things to bring that to pass if necessary, including frustrating why the nations do autonomously what they do. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates back in Psalm 33, the plans of the peoples, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Let the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Obviously a reference to Israel initially, but would that every nation name the living God, this God, as their God. So beloved, all God's earthly providences are designed to bring about confession of God as the only God. Cyrus, a pagan king, God used to get Israel back in his homeland. Here's what God said to Cyrus. He might as well say it to every ruler and to each one of us. This is Isaiah 45. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. That's how we can be certain this providence is under God's hand. I create well-being. I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So trace all the calamities in history. What is God doing ultimately? Drawing the worship he deserves from the nations. All of this will culminate in one glorious worship service when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again and finally, finally, he will get the worship he deserves. Philippians 2.9, therefore God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen at his apocalypse at the end of time. So we're asking the question, how does God use calamity? This might be a longer sermon than I normally preach, but as my precious wife would say, what else do we have to do? Number two, how does God use calamity to expose to us more vividly what we truly long for and to show us how all those things are ultimately only met in Jesus? So you often don't know what you long for until those things are removed from you. We take for granted our mobility until we lose it. We as a church family have lost our freedom to gather as God's people. I suspect there's even, uh, that's even more precious to you now than it was before. I emailed with Jan Adams, chair of our search committee this week, and she said this, nothing like worship altogether. We will now treasure it even more. That's right, Jan. We all feel the same way. Our longing should point us to the purposes 
for which God made us. So now that certain things are restricted and you're more aware of what you long for, let that point you to how God has fashioned you, how he's made you. That's what verse 15 says. He fashioned your heart. You were created to enjoy certain things, things to make it glad. All of us, therefore, are seeking a kind of salvation, a kind of satisfaction, a kind of security. Our longing for normal, right? We want life as it normal is, at least for affluent countries. That echoes our longing for paradise. Let me just say this to those of us who live in affluent countries. Don't forget that normal for a lot of people in the world is not having plenty. Do you know how many people go to bed hungry in this world every day? 800 million people. That's more than two and a half times the population of the United States. Two and a half times the population of the U.S. Go to bed hungry every day. So we ought to be deeply thankful to the extent our longings are met and be careful to look beyond our longings to the one who is the gracious giver of all these good gifts. You might see in the outline Psalm 45, 15 to 16. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. God be praised. God is good. God is irrepressibly generous. God in his very core being loves to meet the needs of his creatures, even those who refuse to acknowledge it. You see an echo of this in Psalm 104. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they're filled with good things. When you hide their face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and they return to dust. We're utterly dependent on God for our very breath, the beating of our hearts. When you send forth your spirit, they are created. You renew the face, the ground. Beloved, all human blessing testifies to God's kind provision, his delight to give you good things, good pleasures. And in every one of those is a reminder, turn from idols, turn from esteeming anything more than the Lord himself. Come to the source of all goodness. Paul and his companion Barnabas went to a city in the ancient world, Lystra, and they performed a miracle healing a man who had been lame. And the, the pagan people there thought, well, the gods had come down. We better start sacrificing to them. They start making sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. And he says, time out. Acts 14, 15. Man, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them. Maybe he's thinking of Psalm 33 at this point. In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, and he did not leave himself without witness. So those places on the earth that do not have the Bible, that did not have the prophets of God, nonetheless had a witness from God himself. He did not leave himself without witness. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. 
Every human satisfaction ought to bring a heart to humble adoration of the God who has given these things. And sadly, it takes the deprivation of them sometimes to show us how much we value them. Right? In the face of a deadly virus, what is it we really long for? Paradise. We long for paradise. Why? You were built for paradise. And you still long for those aspects of life that made paradise so wonderful. Things like safety. Why do you keep your distance in this time six feet from people? Safety. I love Psalm 12 verse 5. God says, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Why do you and I long for safety? Because paradise, the Garden of Eden before sin, was safe. There was no threat there of disease, no threat of sickness, no threat of death, no threat of being attacked by an animal. There were no threats in paradise, no risk of human welfare. There was an abundance of food and provision, productivity. Some of you are going stir crazy because you can't work the way you want to. I was talking to Clara Carey, one of our members on the phone this week. I said, how are you doing, Clara? She said, I hate not working. What is that an echo of? That God made us to be productive on the earth. He made us to be mobile when God created Adam and Eve. He said, you're now free to rover about the earth. Beloved, this is exactly what life will be in the new heavens and the new earth ultimately. Everything you long for and nothing to fear will be given back to us. Revelation 21, 3 and 5. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. This is a return to paradise. God with those he created. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. Paradise restored, yet without the prospect of losing it. Paradise restored, but no sin, no possibility of rebelling against this God. And best of all, the presence of God. The gift of gifts, Adam and Eve forfeited. The only threat to Adam and Eve's well-being was themselves. Their foolish rejection of God's kingship. So think about this question today. We naturally long for paradise. We want to pout our lives with all the things that echo, the pleasures, the safety we had in paradise. Do you really want the paradise of God without the God of paradise? Think about that. Let me give you a test to see if you really do want pleasure and prosperity on God's terms versus your own. Here's the test. It's from Proverbs 3. In verse 13, we meet Lady Wisdom. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the gain, the one who gets understanding. The gain from her is better than gold, silver, her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels. 
Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand and her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness. All her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who hold her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Lady wisdom prefigures the Lord Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Jesus' hands, exist all these blessings, wealth, health, honor, significance, security. It says his ways are ways of pleasantness, paths of peace. That's what the economic stimulus package is designed to bring back to Americans. Ways of pleasantness, paths of peace, as much as it can. And the point is, beloved, take on God's, taken on God's terms, you will then enjoy them most fully. But your heart must be in the grip of what truth to enjoy God's blessings. Everything that Lady Wisdom Jesus has in his hands, what must your heart be in the grip of? What truth? Nothing I desire compares with you. You either desire Jesus above all these or these above Jesus. He will give you the grace to enjoy them, be blessed by them. But if you put them above Jesus, they will ultimately destroy you and grieve his heart. Did not Asaph, the psalmist, get it right in Psalm 73? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. We could stop and have a 15-minute time of confession based on that alone, couldn't we? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. David said essentially the same thing in Psalm 43, 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. David had lots of joys in his life. You have lots of joys in your life. But until God is the exceeding joy, you live on the precipice of ruin and destruction. So, beloved, being fearful of losing the things we enjoy in our modern comforts and pleasures is a cause for examining what is it I demand in my heart. And I'm making the point that in God's economy, he may tank a country's economy to strip people of their false salvations. Look at our psalm, verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its great might, it cannot rescue. Ah, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, for those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death, keep them alive in famine. That's why our soul waits for the Lord. He's our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. We're answering the question, how does God use calamity to bring the worship He deserves from nations? Secondly, to show us that what we long for testifies that we were made for paradise, but we need to find our deepest longings in the love of God and Jesus Christ above all things. Number three, how does God intend to use calamity? to consider how hard it is to worship him. Look again at the first three verses. The psalmist is urging you to exuberant praise. Skillful, loud, 
joyful. And I would say, impossible to pull off in passing. I personally can't be obedient to these three verses by singing a few songs and worshiping with you on a Sunday morning for an hour. That's not enough for me. With as many times as the psalmist, as God, through his human authors, are calling us to praise, to sing, to rejoice in, our lives must be marked by more worship than one little hour on a Sunday morning. So it makes you wonder, are you too busy for this kind of intentional worship? God has disrupted the normality of our lives, and they're very busy. Those of you with kids, they just got a whole lot busier, didn't they? They're out of school, you're running around, you're chasing them. This is a real time of challenge. Not denying that for a second. But how much time do I really care to make for the Lord? I know this is a source of guilt and frustration for a lot of Christians. Maybe God is stopping your normal life to get you just to sit and listen to him. In the spirit of Mary. A little story in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Jesus entered a village. A woman named Martha welcomed into her house. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with so much serving. Mary got the better part because she found the grace to sit at Jesus' feet. Now, when I look at verse 20 of our psalm, our soul waits for the Lord. He's our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. When I look at that, I realize it simply takes time to get that into my soul and believe it and experience it and savor it. Waiting, biblically, is not passive. It's the fruit of seeking the Lord and His Word, pondering it, reflecting on it, and staying there until your heart is glad. Most of us, if we have any sort of daily Bible reading at all, we read out of duty, we check off what was on the reading list, and did our hearts become glad with what we read? Was our soul helped? Did we sense a new, renewed Real confidence, God is my shield. Did we sense faith breaking into our hearts? Did we experience Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Be still, know that I am God. We want to become that person whose heart's impulse is to call upon the Lord. The more you know him, the more that will be your impulse. Psalm 50 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon Him in the day of trouble. God wants to be called upon. He wants to be prayed to. He wants to be in constant, unbroken dialogue with you about your needs. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. I make a promise to you that any extra time you spend with Jesus in this time of being out of work and whatnot, you will not regret. You will not regret it. 
Perhaps this is the time to establish a new pattern of daily Bible reading and prayer. So here's a question to think about. What am I when I run out of things to busy myself? What am I? What am I saying about my soul satisfying it when I'm bored? We're looking at how God uses, uses calamity. That's the bulk of the message. Number four, how does God intend to use calamity? To help us ponder how terrible it will be at the end of the world. Calamities throughout earth history serve as many pictures of the final judgment, which will be far worse. Interestingly, that is on Jesus' mind as he's bearing his cross on Good Friday, going to Calvary. Luke 23. There followed Jesus, a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. Out loud. You could hear their cries, their sorrows, see their tears. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem some 40 years later in 70 AD. He takes up a long discourse about this in Matthew 23 and also in the other Gospels. But the the calamity that happened to Jerusalem, beyond description according to the Jewish historian Josephus, serves as a paradigm of the judgment at the end of time. All earthly calamities are emblematic of how awful it will be at the end of time. Revelation 6.15 picks up on this allusion the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, people humanly have means of escape. People humanly have means to protect themselves. People who would think they would escape because hmm? they have the power. And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. So terrifying will be the final judgment that people would rather have boulders and mountains fall on them. Every world calamity should wake people up to that final judgment. Notice the psalm alludes to God's throne. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From there he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. God observes. God evaluates. And God will hold to account. We'll all stand before that one enthroned one day. And for those who know verses 18 and 19, they fear him. They hope in his steadfast love. They trust his gospel. 
he will deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. That ultimately is fulfilled in paradise. We will have everlasting life in abundance. So that is why all temporal suffering, beloved, should direct our attention to future glory. Here's the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 4. We don't lose heart. Though the outer man is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As bad as calamity is, beyond all comparison will be the future glory of being with Jesus forever in the renewed heavens and earth. One of the ways we don't lose heart is being with each other. That's why Jamie mentioned after the service, some of you are going to get together on Zoom and talk and fellowship and pray and see each other face to face. There is, there is something spiritual and supernatural, isn't there, about face to face. Last week, Janice and I tuned in from our home in Virginia to Rock's home group, and we saw all the faces around the Zoom screen. And it, 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 was, it was just spiritual. And Paul alludes to this in, the, in, the, in his letter to the Thessalonians. He says in 1 Thessalonians 2.17, Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. There it is. That's what we're all longing for now. He says it again in chapter 3, verse 10 of 1 Thessalonians. We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Beloved, this, this face to faceness we're missing ultimately points us to the glory of seeing God face to face in Christ. Your longing to see your, your beloved Wallace friends and members, it's, it's ultimately a longing to see God face to face. That's the promise, 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, 1 John 3, we'll see him as he is. Revelation 22, 4, they will see his face. So God uses the calamity of being apart to make us long for that very ultimate glory. Last point, it's short. How does God use calamity? Number five, to assure us of his everlasting love. Notice the psalm ends with this plea. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we've hoped in you. The one we hope in is also the one who is the object of our love and whose love is upon us, the source of God's covenant love, the one in whom all the promises of God find their fulfillment, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this verse tells you that all calamity must ultimately be measured by his cross. There is no earthly calamity that compares to the cross. Every time you read the word COVID-19, think cross much worse. There the Lord Jesus bearing the burden, calamity, bearing the burden of our sins. Crushed under the weight of our Father's judgment for our sins. God's love upon us only because he put our sins upon Jesus. The cross reveals the love of God for sinners. The extent to which he will rid the world of the calamity of sin is casting his son 
and to the death those sins deserved. No wonder the earth itself, when Christ was dying, experienced calamity. The sun is hidden. Rocks are split. There are earthquakes. The earth itself that Jesus made is crushed under the weight of this death. Here's the one death itself that produces life to those who trust it. The one calamity itself that gives hope to those who believe in Christ and repent and trust him. The one calamity that makes, that trusted makes you perfect in God's sight. The one calamity which hoped in guarantees paradise, no more calamities. The one cry of forsaken, Father, you've forsaken me, my God, my God, that promises forgiveness, cleansing, mercy, and grace. May all calamity be measured by the glory of God's salvation and his love and Jesus through his cross. He became poor to make us rich. So we ultimately rest in this promise, don't we? Romans 8, 38. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. No calamity will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May our hearts go there every day, all day long, and make known this love to those suffering in this calamity. Let's pray. We thank you, our Father and our God, that your word tells us how you intend to use calamity. Doesn't mean it's not painful for us. It doesn't mean we don't suffer under it. It doesn't mean we don't experience things that are humanly awful. And yet you are God. There is no other. Keep us in our right minds, adoring and praising you, looking to you, trusting you, and ever resting that because of Jesus, the love of God is upon us. And we hope in the one who is for us salvation, forgiveness, cleansing, righteousness. Thank you for Jesus. Be with your people, Jesus, in body and spirit. Amen. Let's stand and sing, O 